If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code twelve twelve and get forty dollars off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code twelve twelve. Sleepcoolnow.com, twelve twelve. This is our number two of the World According to Zig podcast for this June eighteenth, two thousand seventeen. My name is John Ziegler. I am the host of this show, which is one of the few places you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. This being hour number two, this is normally the hour where we uh, schedule a special guest, and this week is no different. This being Father's Day, we have an extra special guest. Uh, I'm going to be uh, interviewing my father. Uh, for Father's Day uh, for a couple of different reasons, which I'll explain shortly, but uh, let me first introduce him. Uh, He is Hans Ziegler. Dad, welcome to the show, and happy Father's Day. John, happy Father's Day to you. It's nice to be with you today. Thanks for your invitation. I look forward to having a nice discussion with you. (laughs) You sound a little frightened, but you shouldn't be. Oh, I am frightened. I mean, you're you're a tough... You're a tough interviewer, so I've been preparing for this all day. Well, <laughs> I gave you all the subjects. I, I mean, know. They were frightening to uh, me. But, but, which, but by the way, I hardly ever do. I mean, I, I gave you a an accommodation that I never give to a, an interview subject. But, you, you know, since you're my dad, I figured I would, uh, you know, allow that request to slide by. And I said, OK, I'll, I'll give you the subjects that I'm going to going to ask you about. And I will adhere to that uh, subject list. And by the way, thank you for for making time. We've changed the time of the podcast today to accommodate you, which we also never do for our guests because you are the busiest retired person I know of. Uh, and so thank you for making the time. Uh, one of the reasons why I, I, I want to do this interview, other than it should be very interesting uh, radio and, and, and fascinating stuff for our listeners is uh, I wanted to have a record of a number of things, uh, including for my two daughters, this being uh, father's day, uh, grace five and Diana, who's a newborn. I don't know, you know, how long into the future this uh, recording may exist, but I, I wanted them to, to be able to know a little bit more about you and, and your very interesting life and, and our relationship. And so is there something that you, were, assuming that they're listening now years into the future, what, what would you like to tell or say to Grace and Diana? Well, thank you very much. I appreciate being part of this discussion. I thought a lot about that today, and... I guess, simply put, I would say to Grace and Diana that Gran and I love them very, very much, as we do all of our grandchildren, and we want them to remember 
which is really important that they are in the caring hands of very special parents who love them unconditionally and their parents have a lot of wisdom so listen to them and also as they get older don't be self-centered because no one's going to pay attention anyway <laughs> what does that mean? I mean clearly Donald Trump would disagree um, but you know well, of what, course. <laughs> yeah, we're not talking about Donald Right well, now, <laughs> right now, well, maybe later, because I do right. want to ask you about your experiences with him. But, uh, but what what do you mean by that? It, it... Well, I was inspired by a speech that was given. Do you know Bob Mueller at all? He happens to be a name that's been mentioned frequently in the press. The special counsel. Yes, and he happened to give a commencement address in my hometown okay. last week to uh, a prep school where his granddaughter graduated, and he gave some interesting advice to the young graduates, and one of them was, and this is sort of a modification of what I just said, remember as you get older, um, don't feel that you are, don't take yourself so seriously, okay. because no, no one else does either. I, I like that. I, I, that is fine. Okay, that's, that's, those are wise words, and yeah. I hope uh, Diana and Grace, if, if they ever get a chance to listen to this, uh, will uh, take them very seriously. All right, now let's talk about you. And to talk about your story, I think we need to talk about, since this is Father's Day, your own father. Because uh, your father uh, was a very interesting story. Uh, I'm not going to get into all of it, because <laughs> pe- people might misunderstand parts of it. But uh, but the, the essence of it is was this, that y- your father um, and you were both born in Germany, uh, he um, was a German scientist who came over to the United States via Operation Paperclip. Uh, he worked with von Braun, and he uh, he also was responsible for how we ended up with solar power to power our satellites in the beginning of the of the space era. Uh, he was a, a very smart guy, uh, and um, but but my sense is that you don't have a lot of respect for your father. Uh, who passed away many years ago. Uh, is, is that accurate? And if so, why? Oh, no, that's totally inaccurate. I have a lot of respect for him. As a matter of fact, he's a very talented and a brilliant, crazy smart man. And I think as I grew older, I tried to understand why he was the way he was. He was brilliant. And sometimes with brilliant people, you think about the fact that maybe you feel as a child you get more attention but the bottom line is he he cared very much for everybody in his own fashion he was brought up in a very interesting household his mother my grandmother essentially and this is the most important part of the message about my father she she was a waitress at the Hofbräuhaus house in munich which maybe some of your listeners this is probably boring but it's the largest beer hall in munich okay and she was a waitress lifting up a plate of maybe 10 or 15 beer steins and deliver them to the patrons. The reason why she did that is because my father's father, my grandfather, was killed in World War I, and she had to support the family. So she did that, and one of her ideas was, which was quite revolutionary in those days, my father was born in 1911, which is a hell of a long time ago, but she felt that the way for him to succeed, because she thought he was a pretty smart guy, he needs to go 
and get his doctorate degree in electrical engineering. Can you just imagine that in those days? Wow. Here's a woman who I don't even think she finished what was at that time the comparable institution for high school, but she felt he was so smart that he's got to do this. So he went to a college in Munich called the Technische Hochschule and actually got his doctorate degree in electrical engineering in, I guess it must have been, because it must have been in the late 20s. Well, and, and, and when I, Dad, when I said that I, my sense is you don't respect your, your father, I didn't mean from uh, a career or intellectual standpoint, because uh, that would be silly. I mean, he's, a, he's the focus of a, a chapter in a major book. I think it's oh, called but, Earth to Space. Um, right. And, he, you know, he's, he, he's a very legit, I mean, he has a Wikipedia page, for heaven's sakes, uh, even though he died before Wikipedia ever existed. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that, that wasn't what I was referring to. I was referring more to him as a man and as a husband and as a father. Uh, is, that, is that a misperception on my part? Well, I think it's a misperception that I didn't respect him is the fact that I felt that in terms of the kind of relationship he had with others, it was a typical what I call classic, as I got to learn it as I got older, you know, German marriage, German relationship, where they all worked hard, you follow the rules, there's no deviation from the rules, and if you follow the rules, everything's okay. If you made, you know, if you kind of deviated or did something that, he felt was inappropriate, then there were consequences. But that was long-term, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it worked out well because I'm fine. All right. Okay. Well, we'll leave it at that Um, (laughs) because this is mostly a focus on you. And, you know, you are almost a classic child of World War II. Uh, Why do you say that? Because you were a child in Germany during World War II. Uh Uh-huh. Right. Okay. <laughs> so, so what's, I don't know what's classic. What's well, classic? well, what I mean, by, what, I, what I mean by that is that your 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 age put you right at the time period when you were a child of the war, right? Exactly. But I wasn't classic. Okay. You know? <laughs> if you're gonna, Dad, if this is gonna be the standard of 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 your objections to this interview, this is gonna be a really troubling interview. <laughs> No, really. Okay, so I didn't mean anything negative by classic. It's just that, I, you know, there's no question that, uh, you know, what, what, how old were you when you came over with your mother to be with your father who had already come to the United States to, to work for the U.S. Uh, Army in, in what would become the space program? How old were you then? I was seven years old in 1947. Okay, and so and you come to this country on a boat, and you don't know any English, correct? I knew no English. That's absolutely correct. None of us did except my mother and my father, of course, because they all learned English. But you're right. That, that's true. And so you're coming out of war-ravaged uh, Germany. You're, you're seven years old. You're coming to a new country where you don't know the language. You're thrown right into school. And uh, to me, that's unfat. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I know that Grace and, and myself and my daughter and myself both uh, are so uh, spoiled and wussified that I could never have survived under similar circumstances. So how were you able to do it? Well, you know what? You really don't think about it. I, I was told I had to go to this school, and I was there, and I tried to listen to what they had to say, but I had no idea what they were talking about for quite a while. 
But on the other hand, and you know this because you now have two beautiful young children, when they are young, even at that time I was age seven, you really pick it up. You, you begin to do what is necessary. You just learn it. And after three or three months, I was able to communicate a bit. And even though it was, I remember it was a little difficult in terms of my relationships with my classmates in kindergarten because they all thought I was a pretty odd guy, especially since we didn't have any money. My parents dressed me in traditional German clothing, which was very feminine looking. And so. Wow, that I must have made you real popular post World War II. Very, yes. I was, yes, I was very popular. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so, you know, after a while, it just, you know, that's the benefit of being very young. Kids really absorb things, they learn. Mm-hmm. And. Did, did, when you came, I mean, you must have been frightened, I'm assuming any kid would be. Uh, did you did you ever imagine that your life would work out in in many ways so incredibly well? I mean, you've had an amazing career, and you know you you have done exceedingly well for yourself. And uh, the life that you've been able to live is is got to be beyond what you could possibly have imagined coming over here as a seven year old, right? Well, I'm very grateful for all that. And back to my dad for a minute, and this is related. He's the one that uh, made the decision to bring us over, and that was the biggest gift he gave me, and I would be forever grateful for that. Because the United States was so much better than what post-war Germany would have been? Is that, is that what you mean by that? Oh, of course. I mean, post-war Germany was really difficult. When we left in 1947, this was two years after the war ended, you know, things were not in optimal condition, and... Of course, there was this, and you probably read about this, and tell me if this is boring and I'll stop. (laughs) But, but, you know, there was this enormous competition between the Russians and the Americans to recruit German scientists. Okay. Fortunately, we ended up on the right side of that ledger. So you could have easily been in in Russia for the rest of your life. Well, that's the thing I always think about. We could have been in Russia. My dad could have been persuaded by someone from the at that time the Soviet Union saying, you know, we have this tremendous opportunity for you in Moscow. Well, he also could have taken the job that Herb Kohler offered him, uh, and you would have all been rich. So there's there no, been... that's not true. <laughs> what do you mean? That's... Wouldn't have been... You no. wouldn't have been rich. Okay, I don't think so. Right, My well... father, no. But... All right. That, but that, my father, that, that worked out well for him. Okay. And anyway, the, the point is that you've done exceedingly well for yourself because you worked your ass off. I mean, you, you have the, the classic uh, German work ethic to almost an extreme degree. Uh, my memories as a child are that, you know, you would get up way, way before we ever dreamed of getting up to catch an, an insanely early train uh, from uh, the suburbs of, of Philadelphia, actually in New Jersey, to be the first person in the office in Manhattan, New York City, as a banker, uh, and be you know not only the first one there, but one of the last to leave. What, what drove you to do this for so many years, to have that kind of, of a work ethic, and how important do you think that was to your inevitable success? Well... That's a very complicated question, and thank you for asking it. But one of the reasons I get up very early in the morning is because, and this didn't happen all the time, but I felt 
an obligation to come back when I ha- when I could at a reasonable hour so we could all have dinner together. And I felt since I had to leave, you know, like at five or five thirty, in order to do that to come home at a reasonable hour, that that. That's one of the motivations. The other motivation, which is maybe more to your point, is that I felt that in order to try to secure a reasonable lifestyle and a reasonable future for children, that I had an obligation to do everything I possibly could to achieve that goal. That's that's the general answer. Well, you clearly did achieve that goal from a financial standpoint, and you've been very successful in, in your financial career. You're, in, in essence, the way I would describe uh, your uh, career, especially in the, in the most recent decades before your retirement, is basically you're a manager of money managers for very wealthy people. Is that a, is that a fair assessment of, of what your expertise has been? I, yeah, I think it's fair. I think... Right. You know, it spans over the last 50 years. I've been doing work for a number of banks, a number of investment management firms, and yes, that's, I think that's a fair way to characterize it. So, yes. so why, do, why do you think that you have been exceedingly successful in that realm? Well, first of all, I think I've been successful, but don't exaggerate it. I've, you know, there are okay. other people. You've been reasonably I, successful. Yes, and and... I think, one, I do have a work ethic, that's for sure. I do work, and I did work, probably equal to or more than the hardest workers in our firm. But secondly, I had developed, and this came later in my life because I learned some severe lessons when I first returned from the Army, that the only way to really become successful if you're managing people is to create a bond with each of the people that you're working for. Because there are three, three management styles, really. One is total autocracy, do what you're told and don't tell me about it. Secondly, total benign neglect. In other words, do what you want to do and hopefully it'll work out well. And third is what I call the player-coach model, which is you're in charge, on the other hand, you got their back. You know them very well. You have a good relationship with all of your workers. You create a very, very, to the extent you possibly can, very, very positive work environment and culture where people go to work because they really look forward to working with me and their colleagues. All right. Now, in the course of this very interesting career where you've dealt with a lot of high net worth individuals, you have dealt directly with a lot of very interesting uh, and powerful people. And I want to ask you about several of them here. And one of them, although you you didn't deal with him super extensively, you had some interesting interaction with Donald Trump. Uh, And and this happened um, back in the late 80s when you were actually uh, at least uh, somewhat involved in, in some very high profile transactions at the time that got a lot of publicity involving Donald Trump. And then also, this was an era in the early 90s when Trump's empire basically was a breath away from complete collapse and the banks, uh, numerous numerous, uh, financial institutions, including one that you were involved with, 
uh, all got together and, and, and basically decided whether or not we were going to let Donald Trump live or die. Uh, I, I'm curious. Let's go back to your interaction with this guy, Donald Trump, back during that era. Granted, it was a long time ago, but, you know, this was what this was the era that made him. He was a huge financial celebrity at that time. What was your impression of the Donald Trump that you interacted with back then? This happened in 1988, where Donald Trump was looking for financing for a boat. And this was I think he would call it a yacht, by the way. Yeah, we'll call it a yacht. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And this yacht was owned by a very wealthy Saudi Arabian arms dealer by the name of Khashoggi. And by the way, he was in the newspaper last week in the New York Times obituary because he died. But he was on bad times in 1988 and was trying to get rid of his 300-foot yacht, and Donald Trump expressed a great interest in buying it. And there was a little article in the Boston Globe saying he was interested in buying this yacht. And my boss at the time, who was a very smart, aggressive CEO of our company, said to me and our chief lending officer that we should go down and visit him to make a proposal to finance his boat. So we did that. We went down and visited him in his office. And, you know, he's pretty much what you saw and see today. He's a very gregarious, smart, deal-oriented person who wanted to make a deal. And... And this would end up becoming the Trump princess, which got an enormous amount of publicity at the time. That's correct. Uh, so anyway, so we, excuse me for interrupting. Now go for it. I want to finish this. So he, we had an idea about what we should propose, which was, I think it was like a $15 million loan. Not big in today's terms, but in those days it was not insignificant. And so our chief lending officer me decided, you know, we should give him interest only for five years, and they would start to amortize the loan. And we wanted to also um, have him deposit some money so he could service a debt, something reasonable, you know, prudent banker. So we um, sat down with him, and he, didn't, he wasn't really interested in our terms. He told me what his terms were, which were he wanted a 30-year loan, interest only, and that was it. And so out of due respect, to him, sort of, and my boss, who wasn't there, we said, fine, well, we'll get back to you. And I said on the airplane back to Boston, I said, you know, this, this is not a good deal. And he agreed. So we said to my boss, this is not going to work. This is just not a good deal. He wants 30 years, interest mm-hmm. only. And so he said, my boss, he said, no, I think we should do it. You should go ahead and do it. Tell him we're going to do it. And the only condition is that he needs to deposit $2 million in a checking account so he can service a debt, and that called it it. So that's what we did. And in, I guess, less than half a year, to your point, the whole real estate market began to crumble, and his empire, I think, really took a hit. And he was unable to service the loan, and we ended up owning a really beautiful yacht. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, 
there's there's so many interesting things about this, um, and I want to try to hit on on many of them. What you just said there about your boss, who was a very flamboyant guy, <laughs> but he was a very uh, uh, let me stop. He was flamboyant, but he was very smart and right. did okay. a good job. All right, I'm, I'm not criticizing him, but the yeah. por- here's what's here's what is important for people to take away from this story about the Donald Trump narrative. The reason why you guys gave Trump the loan that was a bad deal was because your boss was enamored with Trump's celebrity, correct? I think that may have had something to do with it. All right. So, and Trump, by the way, starts to learn this. He's not a complete idiot. Trump starts to understand he can get away with things other people can't because he's Donald Trump. He's a celebrity. People like dealing with celebrities is that fair i i think it's fair i mean i didn't i, I didn't think about it that way in those days well because you didn't we never knew he was going to be president either <laughs> by the way no. but if 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 i if someone or i could have because you know i was obviously uh, in college at that time if i had told you in fact i was living with you at this time if uh if i had told you that the guy that you just dealt with on this uh, trump princess yacht loan that he didn't pay back after like six months uh, was going to eventually be president of the United States. What would you have told me? Um, I think I would have said it's probably not possible. <laughs> <laughs> and on what basis would you have said that's not possible? Well, because, first of all, I didn't know him that well. I only had one encounter with him. And well, secondly, since we had this relatively unsatisfactory experience in terms of the loan, it didn't, wouldn't have aligned itself with what I would consider would be an acceptable presidential candidate. <laughs> Boy, you are really, really playing it close to the vest. I had a feeling you might do this, Dad. Uh, you're, 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 you're turtling on me here, but that's okay. I get it. Um, now, but you mentioned that there's only the one episode, though. I, I was under the impression that you guys may have been also involved in the Mar-a-Lago transaction which is a fascinating transaction and really a key to Trump's success. The, the story of Mar-a-Lago, as I understand it, is either incredibly brilliant or, or rather corrupt, depending on, on the way you view it. Can you, can you uh, fill us in on that at all? Well, first of all, just to clear the air, and to be fair, it wasn't corrupt. The bottom line is Margie Mary Weatherpost owned this beautiful mansion in Palm Beach, and when she died, she thought she was going to do the federal government a massive favor by bequeathing the property to the federal government as a national landmark. And the federal government didn't really care about it. They didn't want to own Mar-a-Lago. So they put it up for sale, and Donald Trump bought it with his own money, at an exceedingly low price. I don't remember what the price was, but he bought it with cash, with his own money, and then again, back to your point about hard times, which happened around the same time that he tried to get the boat financed, he did request a second mortgage or a line of credit based on the value of that real estate. That's correct. All right, last thing on Trump. Um, I, I mentioned that there was at one point a meeting of financial institutions to whom Trump owed money. 
where, frankly, the biggest decision of Trump's life was made, and he had very little to do with it. Correct me if I'm wrong about any of this, but uh, basically what ends up happening is that Trump is, is effectively bankrupt, and uh, these financial institutions make the decision that because of his name and the brand having some value because of his celebrity, that Trump is more likely to pay back at least some, nowhere near all, some of these debts if he's quote-unquote alive than he is if he gets killed off. Is, is, first of all, is that, a, is that a fair assessment of what happened? Well, first of all, we weren't party to that meeting. We were, a, we were just a small player. So we were right. in that meeting the way he characterized it. But I, I do believe that's correct, they felt, and they were right, that they keep him financially secure. They were paying him $390,000 a month to support his lifestyle and give him time to work this thing out. And for the most part, believe it or not, they got most of their money back. Well, I, I don't know that that's different than what I remember us talking about before and some, and some other uh, news outlets have reported as far as them getting mo- maybe it's the definition of most of their money back. Uh, they, certainly didn't yeah. get, they certainly didn't get all of their money back. No, uh, but they got more than they would have gotten if they just let him go under. Sure, you know what I'm saying? sure, sure. That's now, now, the, the, now the, the most interesting tidbit of information there is the allowance that they gave Donald Trump. Because this, again goes to the Donald Trump narrative. And here, so what happened was that these institutions decide, all right, we're going to allow Donald to survive because his name has some value. But in order to keep the value in that name, we're going to give him over almost $400,000 a month so he can pretend to still be a billionaire so that the name will continue to have value, right? Is that what effectively happened? Uh, John, I don't know. I, first of all, I, I think the number I mentioned is correct, but I, it's been so long ago, so if, if I'm incorrect, I think it's that number that they Okay, the number's not that important. The number is he was given a, an allowance so he could pretend to be a billionaire, so that, the number would, so that the name would continue to have value. I think that's probably fair. And, and also, if in fact, again, as I said earlier, assume the opposite that they said, you're getting nothing. He then had to file personal bankruptcy. His, his whole empire would collapse, and his brand would be non-existent. Right. And, and so the bankers made an assessment. You're right. I'm sure they didn't get all their money back, but if they didn't do that, they would have been far worse off. So it was a good decision. And, and the reality is that Donald Trump, to me, I have always felt partially because of the stories that you've told that combined with other news accounts, plus just his, the nature of his personality and some of the things that he has done and said, I've never believed that Donald Trump is anywhere near as rich as he claims to be. Do you agree with me on that? I have no idea. I haven't seen his. What's your opinion? I'm not suggesting that you have any inside information. What's your opinion on that? I would be surprised if his net worth, is as high as he occasionally mentioned during the presidential <laughs> campaign. Occasionally mentioned. Yes, I like, would be surprised. Because, because and that, let's, I'm going to take this away from Trump now, which I'm sure is going to please you greatly. Um, <laughs> but, but there was one other thing related to him. See, you have lived a huge portion of your life and career around 
very wealthy people, dealing with them in a lot of different ways. To me, and I, and I have, you know, not nearly as many as you have, but I've, I've dealt with a few, partially because of you. Trump doesn't act like any of them, even a little bit. Is, is that a fair assessment? Well, he's different, that's for sure. <laughs> but, no question about it. But isn't there, isn't there a way that super rich people tend, they're not all the same, but how would you describe the way that super rich people tend to, to be or act in comparison to the way Trump does? Well, you know, again, I'm not trying to avoid the question, but I don't think you can stereotype, especially in this modern age, super wealthy people. There are, perhaps to your point, what I call very conservative, under-the-radar, discreet, super wealthy people. Warren Buffett, um, the Rockefeller family. I mean, that's one set of super wealthy people. Then you have another genre of wealthy people. You have the founders of Facebook. You have the founders of Uber. Right, right. You have these folks. Old money versus new money is basically what you're talking about. And and Mm -hmm. therefore, I guess maybe to your question, there are quite a few super wealthy people who would find the way they would uh, have a dialogue, conversation, or hang out with Donald Trump would be perfectly fine. I can think of Mark Cuban. (laughs) That's That's about it. And even he seems a lot more sane than than trump to me um, oh, absolutely mark cuban i don't as a matter of fact yeah he's a lot more sane than donald trump but you know what i'm saying there it, there's a cross-section of people who are perfectly comfortable in saying yeah donald he's he's who we are now one of the other people that you've dealt with in your business career who um you, you had a I don't know if you care or even know that, but you had a major impact on on my view of his role in the Trump administration is Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. Now, you don't I'm not pretending you know him exceedingly well, but you've dealt with him enough to at least get a a sense of him. And and you you indicated to me that you thought that he would be great as Secretary of State and he would be a very strong person, not someone who would easily buckle under to a, a Donald Trump-type figure. I have been surprised, based upon what you told me about him, that he really kind of has, for the most part, uh, you know, not been <laughs> a very strong, independent uh, figure and has basically, from what we can tell so far, done what Trump wanted. Uh, have you been surprised by Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State so far? No, I have not. And by the way, I just wanted to mention, I've met him twice in some business that we were doing, and I felt he was a very smart, very strong personality, and I still feel that way. You have to give, this is the kind of person who's thinking all this through, he's being very careful, and there will come a time, trust me, there will come a time when issues will be raised where he has difficulty accepting either what the edict of the president is or some other philosophical issue, and he, trust me, he is not going to be a shrinking violet. Is he the, I'm not asking you to speculate uh, on what might happen, but I, I, I'm curious, based upon the little bit of you know about him, does he have the type of, of personality 
or a character as somebody who might uh, theoretically resign under circumstances that he felt were untenable. Is, is, is that in his personality, do you think? Based on the limited amount of time I've spent with him, I would put him in that category. Okay, because that's what I'm expecting to happen. I mean, when, when the resignations happen, I, I'm expecting Rex Tillerson to be right near the top. Uh, but obviously we have no way of knowing at this point. Now, I have there- a tremendous amount of respect for these people, many of them in the cabinet, and I think they're doing their very best to try to not accommodate, but to kind of manage the situation. And there will become a time, whether it's Rex Tillerson or somebody else, Steve Mnuchin, whoever they are, there'll come a time when they're going to say, you know, maybe this is not right for me. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what that, what might provoke that because well, if, we, we don't know. <laughs> well, to me, it, it should already have happened. Um, yeah. But, uh, and I, and, and, you know, look, I, and I appreciate you, you speaking openly and honestly about this because I know it's not really your favorite thing to do. Uh, but there are a couple other people I want to ask you about that people might find of interest. Uh, you you went to a Georgetown University where you met my mother, who we'll we'll talk about uh, in a little bit, and um, and you, when you were there, uh, John Kennedy was president, which was a very exciting time, I'm sure. Uh, to well, be- he wasn't president, just to correct it. He was elected president in 1960, 1961. So he wasn't president when I joined Georgetown. Well, yeah. What year did you graduate from Georgetown? 63. Okay, so when you were at Georgetown, John Kennedy was president. As part of my, yes, you're okay. right. Okay. <laughs> yes, exactly. You're absolutely correct. Thank you. Yes. Right. <laughs> so, I just want to make sure, I, he wasn't president during the whole period. Okay. I, I'm, I'm thinking that when you got there, when Eisenhower was at the end of his second term, it wasn't all that exciting. But, right? I mean, but, yeah, but, he was, Eisenhower was winding things up. Right. So <laughs> you 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 were much more jazzed as a young man by John Kennedy being president and being there in Washington DC at Georgetown. So much so that you you um you know you were able to attend I think didn't you crash the inaugural ball or something like that? Um at least that's the story that's been been passed down. But you were a big fan uh, of John Kennedy and uh later on when she was Jacqueline and Nassus Kennedy uh, you came to have some some I don't know what, how you would refer to it, but you know you, you had some business dealings with with her. Uh, how would you describe her in comparison to the public perception? Well, before I answer that question, let me clarify how I felt about John Kennedy just a, a, for a minute, if I may. Sure. Um, yes, I was incredibly excited when I was at Georgetown about this new candidate who's running for president, and a good friend of mine a very close friend of mine, who you know, Paul Cullen and I, would put on our tuxedos in the evening, and that's all you had to do is put a tuxedo on. You could crash any Democratic fundraising event. Mm-hmm. And, and we would go to these events and shake hands with uh, Lyndon Johnson, <laughs> JFK, Avril Harriman, Jackie Kennedy, and it was a wonderful experience. And... I was determined that I would go to the inauguration. And at that time, I happened to have a girlfriend who was from Arizona, and her family was a very... Barry Goldwater, right? Yeah, exactly. We're close friends of Barry Goldwater. And it was through Barry Goldwater that I had the privilege 
of attending. So you didn't crash the ball, the inaugural ball. No, I didn't. Okay, crash. so, because, I, so I, I, was there. I conflated two different situations. You crashed yes. other events, but you actually Correct. had a real ticket to the inaugural ball. I had a real uh, ticket okay. to the inaugural ball. Okay, so exactly. so later in life, it must have been extraordinary for you to deal in a business environment with Jackie Onassis Kennedy. What was that like? I was delighted to do it. As a matter of fact, obviously, I didn't share my experience with her at that time. But why not? Why didn't you tell you? Why would you not tell that story? I would have thought she would think that was fantastic. Um, she's a very, and she she was a very very fine person, and I believe that based on my assessment of her personality, since so much went under the dam during that period of time by the time I knew her, which is in the early 80s, I I had a feeling she wouldn't appreciate that. Okay. So that's why I didn't say it. All right, so how was she in comparison to public perception? Oh, I don't know what the public perception is that you have in mind. She, my perception was she's an incredibly smart woman, very sensitive, very conversational in things that she's familiar with, and uh, very courteous. And so, obviously, I was never close to her, but we had meetings every six months for a certain number of years. And um, she was an extraordinary woman. I I liked her very much. Of all the many uh, interesting, famous, super rich people that you've dealt with, is there one that comes to mind as someone who is particularly memorable or interesting? I think it was David Rockefeller. Really? Why, why David Rockefeller? Well, because I got to know him pretty well. He was chairman of Chase, and he, I mean, I was just a fairly junior guy there, but he paid attention to all of us. He and I happened to just coincidentally work out at the same gym every morning, and so we got to know each other, and um, he was just a smart, self-effacing class act who thought about other people rather than himself. And Well, I'll never forget David Rockefeller because uh, he's the source of maybe my greatest uh, story from high school uh, because I had, a, as you know, a very liberal uh, history professor or teacher who uh, hated the Trilateral Commission because he was one of these conspiracy theorist type of people. And David Rockefeller uh, was a big part of that. And I knew that you knew him, and I wrote David Rockefeller a letter explaining what my teacher was teaching us. And he wrote back an incredible two-page, very personalized, very detailed letter, which I still have. In fact, when he passed away recently, I found it, and I think I sent it to you again. Uh, And um, I'll never forget the look on my teacher's face when I brought in a letter addressing my teacher's concerns about the Trilateral (laughs) Commission signed by David Rockefeller. Uh, It didn't make me real popular with the liberal teachers at my Catholic (laughs) high school, but uh, it's something that I'll never forget. Uh, But I guess that was the kind of person he was. As a matter of fact, that letter I wrote you, is exactly what I was trying to describe about him. I remember when you and I had that conversation, and I relayed that to him. He said, I'll write him a letter. Now, here's the chairman and CEO of like a major financial institution who takes out time to write the son of some insignificant executive at the company. Right. So, yeah. 
I, I learned a lot from him, and I think I may have told you that the, the final time I met him or spent time with him when I was leaving the bank to take on another opportunity, he said, let's have lunch. We'll, we'll have lunch at the at the Sea Grill at Rockefeller Center, his favorite restaurant. And so we had this lovely lunch, spent a couple hours together, and it came time to pay the bill. And he said, oh, my God, I forgot my wallet. So I had the pleasure of treating him to lunch. Which is pretty amazing. Not, not only did you buy lunch for David Rockefeller, but it was at Rockefeller Center. It was, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sort of like a Trump thing. <laughs> All right. Um, now, last couple things on your career. Uh, you know, we've already talked about your work ethic and, and you know, how that played a role in, in why, in your words, you were at least somewhat successful. What do you think the um, the smartest thing I'm going to ask you the the opposite as well. What was the dumbest thing? What's the smartest thing you have you ever did in your career? Well, you know, it's a good question and it goes back to what I tried to talk about before in terms of management style. Mm-hmm. So when I got out of the military because I had to do 4 years of service in the military because of Vietnam, I developed a management style which was and I thought this is the best decision I could make that I, when I get back to the private sector, I'm going to apply my autocratic, militaristic management style to the people I work with at the financial institution where I started. And I worked like crazy. I got a lot done. And came time for raises and promotions. My boss came to me and said, let me give you the good news and the bad news. He said, the good news is we're going to promote you to vice president. You're among the younger vice presidents we've had in our company. The bad news is you'll never get promoted again. And the reason for that is because no one likes you. You're hmm. aggressive. You're, you step over people. I cannot question the fact that you got a lot done. But you can stay here, but unless unless you decide that you're going to change your approach, it's just not going to work for you, Hans. Hmm. I, I, this, this is new information to me. This doesn't sound like the guy I know. So obviously that was a major uh, change in your life at that point. That was, so that the worst decision to your point that I made was to say, I'm going to apply military strategies and tactics <laughs> to the private sector. <laughs> but, but the best decision I'm guessing was to change that. So the best decision, it sounds so simplistic, John, but the best decision was because my boss and I had a good relationship. He he was very likable, and he gave me the book by Dale Carnegie, which ah. is how, how to Win Friends and Influence People. And book- it, sound, it, sounds, it sounds a little absurd to you, I'm sure. No, it's a it's a book. You know what, uh, Dad? uh, Clearly, my life uh, probably would have been better had I uh, adhered to uh, that book. Um, But I I would suggest, and you and I have had this conversation many times before, that um, that you and I one of the one of the problems that we've had in our tumultuous relationship is that we have lived in very very different eras, especially in the realm in which. We you know have lived and worked um, one you know from a from a generational standpoint and two 
you know, the financial world is very different from the broadcast world. And, and so it has always been my belief that what worked for you would not have worked for me partially because the, you've referenced the rules many times. And, and I believe that the rules changed in, in a way that would not have allowed, especially as a white male, uh, someone who, you know, <laughs> was, was using those um, values uh, to be able to get, get along, get ahead, and survive. I, I, I'm, my, my personal belief is that if, if you today, as a white male, came along as a young guy with the, hey, everyone should like me type of thing, uh, that you might get run over by a Mack truck. And I know you don't agree with that, but that, do, you, do you even understand where I'm coming from on that? Or do you, do you, do you, or do you just think I'm nuts? As you know, John, we've talked about this many, many times, right. and I respect your views, but I, I have to, as I said before, respectfully disagree with you on that because I don't know what is wrong with people in any environment, whether it's, and I don't know your environment, I totally get the different environment, but anyone in any kind of environment who can perhaps manage relationships with people. I know sometimes, and I think this is your point, which I respect, it's perhaps not as sincere as it should be or as brutally honest as it should be. And so then you, and I think this is your point, you make a decision. Am I going to be really honest or am I going to manage the relationship? And Mm. I respect your view on that. I think, I guess, my perspective was in order to fulfill my long-term personal goals for my family and everyone else. That was, I mean, I could have, I could have. Oh, Dad, Dad, I want to make something clear. I don't, I think you made the right decision, but that I, my point has always been that my circumstances were at least somewhat, if not significantly different. And so that I think that's been in my whole point of even raising it the many times that we've raised it is just so that you understand, because I'm sure that for many years you were very confused as to what the hell I was doing and why I'm getting in the trouble that I'm getting in. Uh, and it and part of it, not all of it, I take responsibility for doing a lot of very stupid things. But part of it is that we're living in different environments and that I, I've always felt it was difficult for you to, to be able to, to view what was going on in my life because you were seeing it through the prism of your own experience, which is perfectly natural. That's, the only, that's my only point. It, I'm not trying to denigrate what you did, or I, I think you did the right thing. No, no, uh, I'm, I'm not even suggesting that. It's mm-hmm. just that, I, look, we, we have different perspectives. But, I mean, for example, and this is just perhaps not a realistic example, but let's Let's say, for example, you decided to be in my business. <laughs> okay? Right. Okay, sure. Let's assume you're going to manage people who are in the wealth management business. And, and, and by the way, if that ever did, had happened, I would have, my entire uh, outlook and personality would have been 180 degrees different, very similar to what sounds like you did, because I would have known that that's the only way it would work. Um, but I never had the same value system for better or for worse uh to want to make something like that work plus i never had the skill set that you had and so 
um, you know, I, I get where you're going. I don't want to get bo- there's other things I want to talk about, so I don't want to get too <laughs> too bogged down in that. But but actually, where I'm going next somewhat relates to this, and and, and obviously it all goes back to the fact that while you're my father, I, I'm half of you and half of my mother, and uh, you met my mother as I've already alluded to at at Georgetown. Uh, you ended up uh, getting married, and then much to my shock, uh, I only learned last year you you got divorced, and then you got married again. And ended up having me and you end up having uh, four children. You're married for 20 years and then you get a divorce. And um, I, I'm, I'm curious. I want to make sure I understand it while I still have time to be able to understand it. When you look back and I know you've done a lot of introspection about what happened with my mother in your first marriage. If you could change one thing about that whole situation, about the whole marriage, what would it have been? Well, first of all, this is a highly personal question, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. However, um, I don't know if there's anything I would have changed because when we decided to get married, we thought it was a good decision. Uh, then we had some challenges, but we then determined that we would really make a go of it and we tried very hard for 20 years to the best we could. Your mother was, was an extraordinary woman, very smart, really worked hard, tried very hard to do the best she could in her own fashion. But there was just the point in time where we mutually decided it wasn't going to work. And that's all I can say about it. Okay, fair enough. Um, I, I'm curious, since you knew my mother in a way that I obviously would never have known her. And she ended up getting uh, killed in a car accident in, in 1994, soon after the divorce. What would you think uh, of, or how would she think of the way the world has turned out in 2017? If she, oh, was, I think she'd be horrified. And because why? Uh, because of the lack of high standards, the, um, low morals in society. Um, on the other hand, I wouldn't have been surprised if she voted for Donald Trump. Seriously? I, I just don't know. But she was very conservative, had incredibly high standards, and some, who knows, but she would have been, I think, so unhappy with the direction of the political environment in the U.S. She's very smart, so I don't know. But first of all, just a question. She would have been upset as to the direction mm-hmm. that this country was going. I agree with that a thousand percent. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, as you well know, uh, one of the, the issues in our relationship is that I have, very since very early on, as far as I can tell, I have naturally tended towards my mother's disposition for better or for worse, uh, her philosophy. Uh, I, you know, just because you were spending so much time at work, I spent more time with her as a, as a kid. I'm curious at what point did you, was it immediate that you realized that that was the case with me as far as, you know, being a a mama's boy, if you will. I never even thought about that. I never, no, it never occurred to me. Not at all. I, I, I totally get the fact you're right. I wasn't home as much as I should have been, 
and your mother had a great influence, and it was a good influence. But I, I never thought about, gee, my son is taking on my wife's fault. No, it just never occurred to me. She was a great mother, and and you're a great son. You're a great son. Well, so, I, I all right. Well, then, at what point? <laughs> this I'm being very serious here. At what point did you realize? that your son, your first son, your first child, John, is going to be a problem. It's going to be trouble. It's not going to be easy. At what point did you realize that? I don't even think about it that way, John, because, first of all... Come on! Were, there, had to be no, a, there had to be a moment when you're like, ooh, this is going to be difficult. <laughs> I, don't, I didn't think about it that way, John, because... And you, you'll learn this as your children grow up, you have to deal with what is dealt for you. And by the way, there's a direct relationship between parental happiness and a children, children's happiness. So no parent can be any happier than their saddest child. And so if I see you or siblings be unhappy or some issue, I don't think about it. Like, boy, this is a big problem. I think about it as, how can I communicate? I've never shut down communications. How can I help resolve issues? I don't think about, it. gee, what a pain in the ass he is. Well, that, that wasn't really what I was, I, I guess I was, <laughs> I was trying to understand, maybe I put it in the wrong uh, terminology. I was trying to understand uh, your recollection of, of me as a young person, as a child or whatever, and whether or not there was something that you recall and go, oh, John's a little bit different. Or, or was I not different? I mean, I, I mean, I, I, my perception of me is that I was a fairly unusual child in, in a lot of ways. I mean, everyone's unique. I get that. Um, but, you know, the things I was into and, you know, my view of the world are, are, are more than a little unusual. Or you don't, you don't agree with that? Well, I thought you were really smart, as you still are. And you had viewpoints, you had strong interests in history, government, sports, and I, I thought it was all good. All right, now as a dad, since this is Father's Day, and I'm trying to learn you know, how, how to deal now with uh, a five-year-old and a newborn, <laughs> um, uh, which, by the way, I'm sure, you, how stunned are you that at 50 years old I have a five-year-old and a, and a newborn? I, I, which is more surprising, that or Donald Trump being president? I think Donald Trump being president. <laughs> but it's still pretty surprising. You had to think about it for at least a second. Um, what's the best thing you think you did and the worst thing you think you did as a father? Well, thank you for asking that question. It's a really tough question. Let's start out with the worst thing I did. And that is back to what we perhaps discussed before, and that is the balance between working really hard, taking care of the family, and at the same time giving them attention and time. So if I had to do it all over again, I think I would have erred on the side of spending more quality time with the children at a formative age. You know, I should have done that. Well, what's the best thing you did? I think the best thing <clears throat> the best thing I did is try to make sure that I keep my lines of communication open, make sure the family supported, 
make sure that I'm always there in case they need me, no matter what. And I hope I've I've done that. See, I think the, the best thing that you you did as a dad. The, 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 I'll, I'll give you my answer in case you care. Um, I, I think I think the best thing that you did was you allowed, at least for me, the freedom for me to be who I am and to take chances in my life that I never could have if you had not been the dad and the provider that you were. So, so you know, there's a, there's a lot of reasons, and for better or for worse, I mean, I've gotten myself into some trouble because of that freedom, but that's, that's on me. That's not on you. But you, you allowed me to have the freedom to be who I am. And I've done some really interesting and I think some good things because of that. And that's you have that, indeed. You've that, done some incredibly <clears throat> good. Excuse me, let me get a glass of water here. <clears throat> well, I, I regardless of whether or not it's good or bad, you know that would not have happened uh, without you. My only real complaint, and I and I don't think it's a matter of the time issue because I understand fully why you didn't spend. You know, part of it was the, the logistics of getting from the suburbs of Philadelphia to, mm. to Manhattan every day, which yeah. was uh, very difficult. But I, I never ever resented at all the time. Um, my only thing was I wish that you would have given me a little bit more heads up about the way the world really was. See, and, and, and that to me has always been the great disconnect. And part of it is because you live in, lived in a very different world than the one that, that I grew up in because the world, I think, is changing at an incredibly quick rapid pace yeah but but i i've the only time i ever think gee mm. i i wish i wish someone would have given me that heads up because mom for all of her good qualities was not good at that either because she was very idealistic and and frankly naive in, in a lot of ways um and and i always think it's kind of more the dad's role anyway to hey yeah let me tell you what the way let me tell you how this really works mm. <laughs> but um but that was the only that's my only real criticism but that's overwhelmed by the positive of the of the freedom a- aspect of this um so i don't know if that is a value to you at all or not but um you know that that's that's my my uh, view on it and i've thought a lot about it as you know i'm trying to figure out what kind of dad I'm going to be, uh, and in, in the two daughters, it's going to be, you know, especially at my age, it's going to be exceedingly difficult, especially because, you know, for better or for worse, I'm going to be much older at each point in their life than you were with with my life. Uh, by the way, do you, what challenges do you see there? Do you have any advice for me as far as how to handle being a dad in general and that in, in particular? Well, first of all, you raise a very good point. Uh, at the time that you were growing up, I really wasn't thinking that much about the world or politics. I was thinking more of focusing on my job. Right. And, I, and I didn't really have, as perhaps I do now, the perspective about what's going on and the impact it would have. And to your question, you're in a much better position because you are much older than I was when you have your children, mm-hmm. and therefore you can give them the kind of perspective that, to your point, fairly so, I was unable to give. So that in itself, back to your question about what you can, you, you, have, you have that perspective, you have that body of knowledge right. from which they would really benefit. Well, and I was unable to do that. Plus, That's a very, very fair point. 
Plus, I have made way, way more mistakes from which they can learn than you ever did. So I got that going for me, which is nice. Um, all right, last last question here, Dad. And and you know, I appreciate you doing this. Uh, My pleasure. And I, and I My wanted, pleasure. And I, and I wanted to you know get some of this on the record now that you're retired. Not that that you're. Uh, you're going to be put away in mothballs anytime soon. You're incredibly you busy. never know. It's possible. Well, hopefully not. Hopefully not. But, <clears throat> but um, I, I am curious as a re- incredibly busy retired person. See, one of the things that I've dealt with recently, and I'm just 50, but part of it's because, you know, my career is over and destroyed. I look at a lot of my life now, especially with two young kids, as the past <clears throat> rather than as the future. Uh, and I look almost at everything now, like, I feel like in a, in a weird way, you and I are of very similar ages, <laughs> like, like like from a psychological standpoint. What are um, you talking about? I'm 27 years older that's than what, you No, are. What, what I'm saying is I think of myself as, you know, coming towards the end of my life because every, I, I, I view everything kind of as in the past because there, there's not a lot of future. And and so with you, I'm, I'm wondering, do you, you – know, obviously there is a future. you got grandkids and – and you know you're very active and lots of things to look forward to but what what is it when you're retired that keeps somebody motivated to think about the future at at at, at, at your stage in life what what is it that, that motivates you or excites you about the future the primary thing that motivates me is the future of my family and i work my motivation through their aspirations your aspirations, the other members of my family, that keeps me going quite a bit. And the other thing that motivates me is, you know, there's some basic, what I call human needs in this country that in my very modest way I try to work on. Education for the people who are underserved in this country, feeding the hungry, providing homes for the homeless, those are the things that keep me going. But number one, it's my family. Well, actually, I have one last thing I want to ask you before we leave. I thought, yeah, I thought we already had one last. No, I know, but I, I, <laughs> I, I, it's something that I, I never got a chance to, to ask you before. I, for some reason, it just came up in the, in the, in the podcast, in the first hour of, the, of this week's podcast. So i got to ask you. You and I have had a battle our whole lives over the New York Times. And I know that yeah. you, I know that you have always believed that the New York Times was basically the gospel. Have has that uh, view of yours? Have I been able to alter it even a little <laughs> bit? First of all, I don't like to challenge you, but I've never said the New York Times was gospel. Okay, you, you've acted as if it was gospel. <laughs> <laughs> so, so have I been able to move you even an inch on that issue? Oh, there's no question. The New York Times is an advocacy newspaper on the editorial page yeah. and sometimes on the front page. On the other hand, it is a good source of information. As I said to you, I don't believe everything they say or what their slant is. I don't believe everything the Wall Street Journal says either. But I think the more information I get, the better informed I am. Right. And the more I'll be in a position to make judgments. New York Times has, has published some ridiculous things, and so has the Wall Street Journal. So, All right. I w- 
You know? So I've made a tiny little impact. Oh, and, you have indeed. You've, you've made it not only a tiny, you've made a major impact on my life. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, thank you for making my day on that. And, and thank you for uh, spending this uh, hour plus. Uh, it's been very interesting. I, I think the listeners probably also uh, got uh, something out of this. So I really appreciate it. Uh, happy Father's Day. And uh, I'll talk to you soon, Dad. John, happy Father's Day to you. And thank you for letting me have this dialogue with you. All right. I'll talk to you Take soon. Care. Thanks, bye Dad. Bye. All right, that's uh, my father on this Father's Day. Hope you enjoyed it. I ask only two things. If you like this podcast, share it via social media, Twitter, Facebook, what have you, or word of mouth. And number two, if you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you do, you use sheets, do yourself a favor and listen to this important message. My name's John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah, they're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh, no wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.